0: Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Empowerment Minutes podcast. This is Maureen Quenda, your podcast host, learning leader, researcher, speaker, and leadership coach. I'm so excited to have Rachel Afolabi here on the show. Rachel is an associate director, instructional designer with Freedom Mortgage, an immersive technology researcher, and a lifelong learner. Today, Rachel is here to talk about the ambiguity of instructional design projects. I'm really excited to have you on the show, Rachel. So thank you so much for honoring uh, the invitation to be here. So if, you, if you can get us started by just telling us about yourself, what you currently do in the field of learning and development. Sure.
1: Um, so like you said, I work as, a, um, as an associate director at Freedom Mortgage. What I do is I lead a team of learning specialists and instructional designers on managing our instructional design projects for the mm-hmm. firm and also managing a learning management system of about uh, 12,000 plus users. And that wow. that they're, that's across the board. It's a very heavy lift for the management that we do on a day-to-day basis. Mm-hmm. And for an ever-changing industry like ours, we have to keep on top of our not just the systems, the platform, the design, but also how our learners. Yeah, I also work as a consultant, immersive technologies. I started um that research about two or three years ago, and that on a more formal basis um last year, and work with that in my in my startup as well, where we create um, immersive experiences in in addition to other technology consultants.
0: Everyone has a story about how they got into LD. For me, you know, I've shared that on the show before, I got into L&D accidentally. I used to work for a telecom organization, and then I found myself in a training room. And then from there, because I became a, a corporate trainer. And fast forward, I found myself in L&D, and I'm not looking back. What's your story? Sure.
1: Um, so I started my career as a graphic designer. Um, mostly in photography. That was in the early days of Adobe Photoshop and mm-hmm. um, all those kinds of tools. And I was doing heavy graphic design um, for magazine layouts and things like that. Mm-hmm. But I, you know, my background is in industrial design. So I have a very heavy, heavily um, design, heavy focus um, background. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was I wanted to teach, but I also wanted to be in design. So I was looking for that career path that would merge the two together. Mm-hmm. And so I started, um, you know, in my process of working as a graphic designer, mostly freelance, you know, project-based work, I found, um, I got invited to teach a um, history of design. and didn't what um, instructional design was because at that point they wanted me, I was teaching night class. It was a good um, opportunity, but then some of the students were asking for virtual learning and things like that. And so mm-hmm. the chair of the department at the time had asked me if I could design some things, some resources that could be shown to learners offline. The mm-hmm. Online learning was really in its early days then. And yeah. I mean, it had taken hold in some schools. Online schools existed, but then that particular school did not have an online, um, they didn't have online um, courses or programs.
0: Mm-hmm. So I,
1: I created something in PowerPoint and shared it via email. So, you know, they liked it. They were excited about it. And, it you know, it added a layer of, you know, the classroom experience. So we didn't have to go in the winter. We didn't have to go every night to the classroom. I, you know, I enjoyed it. And then I started looking around and, you know, what kind of program, what career path can I take this at? Maybe I can go become a K-12 teacher. I could teach college. So it was different pathways. And then I found instruction. But it was a purposeful search because I was looking for that career path that married both learning right. and design. So I really wanted to incorporate the two. That's really how I got into it. And then I got into right after that particular job, which I stayed for actually for like a year and a half. Um, then I, that was the era when electronic medical records started. Mm-hmm. And there was a lot of training up, yeah, up where people needed um, that merger of instructional design training specialists and learning management systems. Mm-hmm. So I was fortunate to get into that field. So I ended up staying in the Healthcare industry for longer than I would have imagined. Actually, mm-hmm. I ended up staying in that field for about three to four years before I moved on to other corporate opportunities. But yeah, that's how I got into um, LD.
0: That's really exciting, and and I would say having that strong technical background definitely adds value to your work. Wow, that's impressive. It
1: is. It's it's um, it, yeah. It's it's uh, now I I find the value in that because leading teams uh, I've been in. L&D leadership over the last probably um, four to five years now. Mm-hmm. And I've seen the value of having that background because uh, as you well know, you, you're you in LD as well. So you know that training departments are still very underfunded in many yes, corporate bodies, totally. in many organizations. So you're supposed to be a jack of all trades and that can be a good and a bad thing because one, I, I've found myself to be nitpicking some, you know, with certain things that I probably shouldn't be, but yeah. you know, it's also one of those things that comes with the job when you've done it for so long and you've worn so many hats. You start mm-hmm. not finding fault, but you start noticing what considered the little things. But those things end up being bigger things when you know they get in front of the learner or in front of an executive. Mm-hmm. So um, I think you know th- those skill sets definitely help. Um, yes, but it also makes for a very um, it makes for a stressful experience because when you are underfunded constantly, you know. I mean, um, L and D department, you know, they're doing it. You know, yeah. so it's it's not common to have Absolutely. that. We end up sourcing graphics from all kinds of um, platforms or, de- or developing our own skills. So it's it's a um, it's sometimes a win, but sometimes it's also it, it also adds this layer of stress to to the whole thing.
0: Yeah, and it could even also, you know, slow down the work if you have like hard deadlines when you're you're doing, you know, both the the design and then, you know, working on the graphics. Um, You know, that would be Mm -hmm. a downside, but, in all in all, it's a huge advantage. Yeah, that's really exciting. Um, Thanks for sharing that with us. One of the big challenges we encounter in our role as instructional designers instructional design processes. Even like when you're even applying for a job, that's the first question they're asking you. What's your ISD process? I'm like, it seems to be such a big deal. And even while you're working in the field, definitely it's a challenge. So um so maybe we can talk about, you know, the processes that you're familiar with, if you don't mind sharing with us.
1: Yeah, um when I first sure, when I first started my journey in instructional design, it was one of the things that I quickly noticed as many, many IDs who have been in in the field would know is there's no standardization everybody Mm -hmm. calls it something different so (laughs) the job could be listed either either as instructional designer instructional systems designer training developer curriculum developer e-learning developer yeah anything across that board and i think for every job that i've had i've probably held one of those titles you know, Mm -hmm. and I end up, I find out that I'm doing the exact same thing, you know, I'm looking at (laughs) the um, learning requirements. I'm looking at the audience, analysis, everything. And then I'm building a product and I'm delivering it and I'm getting analytics, all that stuff. So instructional design is, it's been around enough for a long time that it should have some standardization. There should be a body that really standardizes these, um, you know, these titles, processes. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: I mean, there are different charts online. There are people who have attempted to delineate what each of these titles mean and do. But I, I think the disconnect comes from, you know, executives at corporate or people who think they know the field and attempt to put that together in a job description, for example. So job description, yeah. you'll say, oh, must know Ad methodology. First of all, it's 2021. That statement should be stricken from everything.
0: Mm-hmm. It should,
1: it shouldn't even show up anymore. Yeah. Um. When when a job when a job opens with the methodology that already means you're siloing how we you know the designer should. Work. It's limiting because one the audience that you know that I might come in to work with may not even need that kind of typical training. You know, corporate training has got gotten to the point where if if we as instructional designers don't change the direction, the design and the approach of it. Yeah. Corporate training is just going to become, you know, dead on arrival. It's um, it's become so systematic. You know, the usual: start here, screenshots, take an acknowledgement, take a survey, boom. Now you're an expert in that. It's so rigid, and you know, I don't blame the designers or anything. I I mean, I've I've been there, so it's the structure within how we work. You know, we, we, we usually work with crazy unrealistic deadlines. We work with limited tools, or maybe we're the only one person in our department with a part-time person, or maybe the volume of work exceeds the number of people. You know, Mm -hmm. it might be that. It could be a number of things. I don't think I've met anybody who said that their department was sufficient for the work that they do it's it's a tough call because one of those things where you know a job description says oh we need you to know sam methodology agile methodology in what context how does it apply when you do make it to an interview the questions are ambiguous because the person on the other side of the table most of the time is not an instructional designer they have any background yeah and I think that's another problem with the industry is L&D is, you know, L&D has so many tentacles because you have people in talent management, you have people in e-learning, you have people who are data analysts. These yeah. people all wear different hats, you know, do different things, but they think that once you have that L&D title, you're an ex- expert in the technical part.
0: Which uh, is only not... an
1: instructional designer can speak to another.
0: I, I, because I
1: mean. you, have, you have the same speak, you can talk about, you know, I'll pull an example. You know, if we pull any course authoring um, tool that we've both used, we can both talk about some of the challenges that we've had, and we'll both know what we're talking about. Yeah, Anybody yeah. who hasn't done those things practically can't speak to it. It's just yeah. not possible. We all, we've all worked with subject matter experts who also never
0: have the time for the
1: instructional designers. <laughs> that ambiguity leads into a whole lot of other problems in the, right. in, the um, in the industry.
0: Yeah. I definitely agree with you, and, and and I also agree that sometimes the people who are putting out these job descriptions have not, no knowledge of what the role currently is, and even when people are changing jobs, you know, they don't even take the time to review it to see if it is still relevant. They just reproduce the same job description that I've used for, for 10 years, maybe, or less, and, uh, you know, nothing changes, and then the expectations are different. It's just, uh, it brings in a lot of uh, confusion so um, I would say that as a leader in the field you know I mean what are some of the tips or tricks or just suggestions that you can you know just let our audience know um, that can make some of this less ambiguous um, and make our roles even more fulfilling how else do you think we can make this whole confusion be less uh, be less daunting
1: um I think for for starters I think the industry is mature enough now that there are, you know, evidence-based resources that um, people who are not experts can utilize. Mm -hmm. I think, you know, usually in the process of trying to um, get a job and hire for, um, you know, to fill a role, I think people rush and just like you said, just use something from like three years ago. Instructional design is a a field that changes so quickly that even after six months, you need to reevaluate. Yep. Yeah. You need to reevaluate what you're doing and what your past job description looked like before you mm-hmm. move forward. I think if you know, uh, you know, it's a combination of design methods, um, technical skills, design skills. You know, all of that. Um, I think three, four years ago, nobody was, nobody was yeah. talking as much about um, user experience. But now I'm sure you've seen titles like learning experience designer. That's not really different for, that's not different from what an instructional designer does. That's what they should be doing. The learning experience is in their hands. They have to design that whole um, process, you Mm -hmm. know? So now that knowledge of user experience, user interface, all of that has now seeped into our, um, into our world of instructional design. Whereas it should have been there all this while we, hampered by the tools we work with and the learning management systems that we Mm -hmm. work with, because there's only so much customization you can do to a technical tool that's already in existence. If you're not building it from scratch, you know, it's only so much you can do and you have to fit that in. You have to fit that into the um, learner's experience. So um, I think for one, you know, again, the industry is mature enough. There's Mm -hmm. a lot of, there's so much services out there that um, departments who don't have a huge budget to understand what that um, role looks like, can consult with um, with designers out there in the field. There are tons of instructional design freelancers. Um, for a, a, a time in my career, I was just freelancing, which is sometimes a, another opportunity that yeah. instructional designers go for because sometimes the constraints that come with being in, a, in an organization in a company, can be very dampening to your creativity. Yes. So, um, some instructional designers just decide to go freelance, and they just do project based work, which I think a lot of us have done. So, I think I think that's one thing that we should um, that that companies can consider when it comes to trying to hire for a role. I think another thing. Is there are courses all over the place now? There are yeah. courses that just understand understanding instructional design as a as a whole to so understand what this um, process is, to understand what you should be looking for, you know, less ambiguity. It, it it would be much easier for a hiring manager to say this is what I'm looking for, like in plain English. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, removing all of those ambiguity, like you know, a ninja and articulate, you know, a dope <laughs> master and captivate, you know, those kinds of <laughs> ambiguous in my opinion crap <laughs> language it's just <laughs> yeah it, it, it adds to the layer agree. of like you know it, it's so ambiguous it doesn't mean anything um those systems are forever changing you know yeah i think I can't remember the last update article it made, but they keep they keep it fresh. They keep making those con they make the content the t- um, platform fresh. So I think if if um, hiring managers take the time to understand what they're looking for and put it in plain, simple, mm-hmm. everyday English, but not be ambiguous just because there was an addi methodology, a SAM, an ISD, whatever in a job description seven years ago, they have to apply it today. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't. Exactly. Yeah.
0: Because every, every, every role is different. And, and, you know, there are some organizations who still really prefer to use some of those, odd, uh, you know, older models. And if that's what they want, that's fine. But it, it should be accurate what they're, mm-hmm. they're putting out there. So thank you. Uh, I thank think you for, for it's okay
1: that. that they use those methodologies, if they're um, applicable, it's also, it's also advisable that they t- they keep looking at the data. You know, look at the analytics of your learners. W- what What's changing and what's staying static? If nothing is changing, then maybe learning is not occurring or people are just clicking a box and moving on with, you know, whatever. But I think these days, you know, we're all exposed to data analytics at different levels. Yeah, so I think absolutely. that might be another opportunity for For people to look at the data to see you know what what's what's going on with the learning you can break down the data as you know to the littlest pieces because things like video for example you can break down how much a person watched a video Mm -hmm. where they stopped the video yeah so that can give you an insight on why so is the video boring or maybe it's not maybe it's too long or maybe it's not captioned or you know things that will probably be like immediate red flags. Why a person wouldn't finish a learning unit, for example. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, um, looking at what your data tells you about your learning resources is very important.
0: Yes, absolutely. Because they always say data doesn't lie. We should be able to really look at track, keep track of our learners' data, and and make informed decisions about those. Make some changes in our in our work that will impact their learning. Definitely. So, I, anyone who's listening. To this podcast you know this can help you start some conversation you know with your team with your organization thank you so much rachel so what exciting things are you working on you know that you like to share with us or you know where can our listeners find you because you have such an interesting background i'm sure someone would like to pick your brains <laughs> you know you're, you're very oh, tech sure. savvy always, to pick your brains
1: oh yeah sure um definitely i always um direct people to um check me out on LinkedIn. Because then you can, you know, I can take any conversations from there. We can mm-hmm. share emails and all that. But um, as far as exciting things that I'm working on, there's, you know, there's always something that being, you know, being someone who is expanding, well, who has expanded my um, my freelance consulting um, business, slowly becoming a small business mm-hmm. because now we've had the opportunity to do more creative, bigger um, projects. Mm -hmm. Um, we're working on a few interactive things. I can say we're working on a, our first commercial game. So I'm excited about that. We hope to launch it just before the summer. Um, we also just launched our first virtual reality. Well, it's yeah. Interactive, um, art exhibit. I can share a link with you. Um, if you want to have that included in it. Yeah. We got an opportunity to pull a few artists together and myself included to, test out our first um, virtual art exhibit to mm-hmm. make sure that we were able to test out this new platform using 360 video and um, you know, just um, JPEGs to create an immersive experience with embedded YouTube videos and about the artists and things like that. It gave us two opportunities. It gave us an opportunity to create a virtual space in 360. Mm-hmm. And it also gave, us, gave the artists an opportunity to share their work with the world since no, um, they haven't been able to do that in art galleries over the last one year. So um, it, it ended up being both a social um, program as mm-hmm. well as a very nice technology exploration. So we hope to do another one in the fall with more elaboration, but this was our first one. So, yeah, it's pretty, pretty exciting.
0: We always wrap up the podcast with a signature question. <laughs> what does empowerment mean <laughs> to you as a learning leader? Sure, I can I
1: can end with um, saying, and I've been saying this, I said I said this a lot when I worked in higher education, mm-hmm. is that the technology doesn't lead the show. You lead the show as a person and your pedagogy leads the show. Don't all don't ever put the technology first because I see that mistake being made constantly. And mm-hmm. people I've seen organizations spend so much money for things that they didn't need because they put the technology first. Technology is always second place. You know, absolutely the human and the pedagogy comes first
0: yeah let's let's think about that when we're making those decisions to empower people through training i wish you all the best and uh we'll be in touch so thank you so much thank you bye-bye